tweeted that EVs are at a tipping point and likely alliance of powerhouses have come together to promote them in spite of dark forces in the universe. What did you mean by that? <laughs> I thought that would be intriguing and I, people, I was people would ask me the question. Well, I, what I had in mind was the, the resistance that has been created and is being funded by, as far as we know, in terms of public statements, uh, the Koch brothers who have decided that any form of subsidy or encouragement or incentive uh, for electric vehicles is a bad thing. A battle over the future of U.S. clean car standards just stepped up a gear. We talked to the woman leading the charge to keep more stringent fuel economy rules in place. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. I'm Julia Piper, your host, senior editor with Green Tech Media. And if you can believe it, we are narrowing in on the midterm elections. We are well under two weeks to go. We'll be discussing the midterms in depth in our next episode, which will be recorded live at Yale University. So stay tuned for that. But today we're talking states with none other than Mary Nichols, head of the California Air Resources Board, who is on the leading edge of the fight against the Trump administration's repeal of clean car standards. Before we get into all that, I wanted to say hi to our Democrat and Republican co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. Brandon's former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Chu, and Shane Skelton was an energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. So I heard you guys in true bipartisan fashion uh, hung out over the weekend, went to a soccer game. That's that's so nice. Yeah, one thing we know that's bipartisan is the L.A. football club. So uh, Shane and I went to the match together. It was with Shane's family. I brought my wife, got to hang out with his kids. Emma's super cute. We had so much fun. But we did not talk about Shane's comments about entitlement reform as a way to uh, get a climate deal done. That did not come up. We didn't. And honestly, it wouldn't have been a lot of fun. Um, Awesome, by the way, getting the kids together. Like you and Sally saved me and Crystal a lot of energy. So way to step up there. Um, And I'm glad we got to have fun together because I don't think you're going to be a lot of fun to be around two Tuesdays from now. So we'll see see if we can, you know, are we going to have to put someone between us at the soccer games or how's that going to work? I don't know like how that works. I mean, I'll go. I'll go if I must. That's big of you. That's big of you. Well, Julia, before we get to uh, the state issues, one thing I wanted to ask Shane about, you know, everyone's been following the news about uh, Khashoggi, the journalist from The Washington Post, uh, who was murdered um, in Turkey by uh, several Saudi, you know, Saudis. Um, In response to that, Senator Heinrich, uh, Democrat from New Mexico, who was on our show uh, a couple months ago, introduced a bill to ban um, oil imports from Saudi Arabia. And I thought this was a really interesting uh, response. Wanted to see how you felt about that coming from, you know, there's national security perspective on this, um, climate perspective. Um, I was just interested to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, I'll just acknowledge that I know very little about the U.S.-Saudi relationship other than that it's, it's very old, it's important to us in the Middle East, and, and I don't, you know, I don't follow all the arms deals. I don't know how all that works. So from an economic standpoint, I don't know. Uh, working in oil for quite a while, I do think just from a technical, practical perspective, that sounds really confusing. Um, obviously, oil is mostly fungible, not completely. There's different types of oil, but global oil markets are highly complex, and I'm just not sure how sensible it is. It might be great messaging. I'm not sure how sensible it is to say Saudi oil that gets onto the market can't land in U.S. ports, and and you know, so I don't know. Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's a bad idea. But doesn't it's not something I would pursue, frankly. Because I was curious about that. Because one thing I think 
um, I thought about on this issue is it's easier than ever right now for us to become energy independent. And that is one thing I think that could be a bipartisan way to approach, you know, this issue is, um, you know, we have the technologies now. We don't need to be dependent on oil from the Middle East and we get, you know, wrapped up in these things that happen over there that cost Americans money and lives. And I think what happened, you know, with this killing is outrageous. And I think it could be an opportunity for us to lessen our dependence. And I liked what Senator Heinrich had to, had to say about that. Yeah, I don't think we want to be energy independent. I think we want to be net energy independent. But but we have oil that meets certain refinery needs in Europe and other places in the world. And we have complex refineries that can process much dirtier oil in a very clean way. So the idea of just saying, let's keep everything we've got and let everyone else keep what they've got, I think it ignores the complexity of oil markets. And also, from an environmental perspective, you don't want that like heavy Canadian crude being processed and facilities that aren't built like ours to handle it. Um, well, that's just... a tricky one because there are environmental issues around extracting and transporting oil sands crude. Meanwhile, I'm sure industry advocates would say there are safe and responsible ways to refine the product abroad. But They love sending their oil to our Gulf Coast refineries. It's a great market. They do. They do. Depending on who you're talking to. I think what we do have to take from this energy aside is that Freedom of the press is an enormous issue worldwide. Journalists being killed is not new, but it is always startling to see an example, especially when as high profile as this. A man who is well-respected wrote for the Washington Post. Uh, I think journalists have a role in standing up and hopefully finding allies and advocating for a free press. Without that, society really does you know, face a lot more danger, I think. And in today's world, it's happening in the U.S. here as well with um, that Guardian reporter who was you know, physically assaulted, essentially, by um, Representative Greg Gianforte, a Montana Republican. So I think we need to be vigilant about the safety of reporters and call on leaders like President Trump to stand up for press freedom. Because a lot of these people, especially international reporters, are on the front lines of, of uh, freedom of expression and broader democratic values. I'll just add that it was interesting to see energy leaders, including former Secretary of Energy Ernie Moniz, withdraw from certain um, Saudi-related energy initiatives. I think there's a clean city they were creating, and he at least temporarily, if not permanently, withdrew his support. So it's interesting to see people stand up and say this is not acceptable uh, in the various um, fields that they work in. For now, though, let's go from all the way abroad right to our home state here in California. States and California in particular are leading on climate action in many ways. Uh, it was interesting that the Advanced Energy Economy Industry Group released a gubernatorial voter guide recently, and it wasn't meant to be partisan in any way, but they did end up highlighting that mostly Democratic governor candidates align with their agenda, things that aren't necessarily political, things like just modernizing the electricity system. So I guess, Shane, just another quick intro question for you. Why do you think so many gubernatorial candidates on the Republican side are silent on these issues? So I, I don't know that Republican candidates running for gubernatorial offices are anti-grid modernization or anything like that. I think, you know, what's registered on a few of our episodes, and we're trying to change this, Amy Harder pointed it out very concisely, Voters aren't driven to the polls or away from the polls or to certain candidates, uh, typically based upon energy and environmental issues. So my guess is that a lot of these candidates, which is very different than governing, being a candidate is very different than governing, are focused on a host of issues that their polling shows as important 
Uh, so, so I've not yet experienced anyone, Republican or Democrat, who opposes grid modernization or you know certain technologies that can make the system more efficient. I don't think it's a key issue for Republican voters. And I'm guessing that whoever these candidates are, are far more focused on the top three issues that their pollster said are going to drive people to or away from the polls or to or away from certain candidates. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't read anything into it other than it's not a campaign issue for them right now. It is interesting, and it kind of puts it on the Democratic Party as being sort of at the forefront and the only party having a more solid energy agenda, if at least if the Republicans aren't at the state level stepping up. Well, yeah, but agendas are defined by how you govern, not by how you campaign. And I think if we looked historically at every level of office from president to Senate to House to governor to you know state legislature, how people govern is not necessarily always consistent with how they campaign. And when you're running for governor, that's especially true because you're sort of held captive to your legislature. So what you can and can't do is going to be very different than what you aspire to do. Fair enough. Well, we know that these races matter and who they put in charge of state issues matters. And we're going to talk now to Mary Nichols, chair of the California Air Resources Board, about her record and her initiatives in championing California's climate and clean air policies. Early in her career, Chair Nichols filed the first test case under the Federal Clean Air Act, suing the Environmental Protection Agency to compel California to impose air quality standards. Later, as a senior official at the EPA, she drafted the first national standards regulating fine particle air pollution. Today, she's on her second tour as chair of the California Air Resources Board. Governor Jerry Brown first appointed Nichols to the Air Resources Board in 1975 during his first run as governor. Brown promoted Nichols to the chairmanship four years later. In 2007, Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger named her to the same post once more. Arguably, no single individual has been more responsible for the success of the Golden State's pioneering and bipartisan effort to clean up its air and combat climate change. Chair Nichols is currently leading the charge to block the Trump administration's proposals to freeze federal fuel economy and auto emission standards through 2026 and to rescind California's longstanding ability to set its own tougher rules. Rules that are also followed by 12 other states that together account for a third of the American market for new automobiles. We're joined now by Chair Nichols. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. You could call me Mary. It might be easier. <laughs> what about the Queen of Green? <laughs> we could also call you that, which is how We're you are well known. has been excited about that all morning. Just so was, morning. You know, Dan Rather came up with that one, and I was kind of amazed by it, but I thought, well, why not go with it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Mary, thanks very much. So we're going to get into California's fight against the Trump administration over clean car standards, which is one of the biggest climate policy flashpoints in the U.S. today. But I first wanted to get a little perspective on what California energy policy is all about, how so much momentum was created. So to do that, I want to go to Florida, of all places, where a few days ago, Republican Ron DeSantis and Democrat Andrew Gillum uh, faced off in their first debate. And the first question was about climate change. And Republican DeSantis charged Gillum of trying to impose California-style energy policies. What are California-style energy policies? And, and why is that a criticism? <laughs> well, California-style energy policies favor efficiency over any other form of energy, meaning that we look for the cheapest way to get the energy that we need. And then from there, we go to renewables. Uh, and then last and hopefully least, uh, we use fossil fuels where we need to. And that's been the policy of the state of California ever since I got here in 1971. 
uh, Californians by a vote of the people created an energy commission whose job it was to look at proposals to build new electric generating facilities and to determine if they were needed and if they were needed, where they should go and how they should be operated. So we've had this overall uh, approach for a long time and it has enjoyed very broad bipartisan support under Democratic and Republican governors. And um, it has been successful over, uh, over the years in making California truly a mecca for investment by firms that are interested in alternative energy. And so I wouldn't say that we've exactly made our electricity completely carbon free, but by 2045, it will be. And where we have been less successful, but have made a lot of progress, which is important considering the size of our economy and our growth in population, as well as the distances and the love that people have for their cars, is we have not yet succeeded in making our transportation system anything like as clean. What do you think about all of that is um, disliked or threatening to some politicians that they, that they would not want to emulate? Yeah, why don't they want all those jobs and cleaner air? <laughs> well, my mother used to say when people were mean to me at school, they're just jealous. <laughs> so so let, let me ask you this, though. You, you'd mentioned that um, the starting point was the cheapest form of electricity. And I think now renewables have you know, taken a huge dive in price. And to be clear, I'm a huge fan of renewables. But wouldn't it be fair to say that for California cleaning up the air, especially dating back to the 70s, was a key priority. You know, if, if coal were the cheapest and, you know, 1994, I don't think California would have started building coal plants because it was less expensive, right? There was a balance of interest. Uh, actually, I was really referring to um, what uh, the late Art Rosenfeld, who is the father of uh, California's energy policies, I would say, referred to as megawatts, meaning the electricity that you don't have to generate at all is the cheapest form of electricity, followed by renewables and other things eventually. And certainly when we started working on this, renewables were not the cheapest form, and we did a lot to clean up uh, natural gas-fired plants and to replace uh, plants that were burning in those days fairly high sulfur oil. Uh, California doesn't have any coal of its own. We have a lot of wind and a lot of sun and we have a lot of gas and oil, uh, but we don't actually have any coal of our own. So uh, you would think that we would not be dependent on coal, but that would not be true because the city of Los Angeles and other Southern California cities that had their own municipal utilities went out of state and invested in constructing uh, and owning coal-fired generation, and uh, they're only now beginning to actually get out of that. But more than half of the uh, emissions that you would attribute to the state of California looking at greenhouse gases are actually attributable to those coal plants. I do remember Commissioner Picker at the California Public Utilities Commission talking about why Californians aren't rioting in the streets. It's because of the efficiency policies. They have 
caused rates to increase in terms of the numerical amount, but the actual amount paid has remained roughly the same because of the efficiency measures put in place. Yeah, we have this argument all the time. People like to cite the um, rates in California as being high, and they are uh, certainly in the top tier of states, but our bills actually remain in the low end because people just don't use as much. And I, I mentioned that uh, also just for our listeners, not to not to make a, a pointed comment. I'm actually a fan of certain policies that will cost a little money and will require some investment. But I, I've found that at least on my side of the aisle, it's helpful to acknowledge up front, hey, this is going to cost money. There is a cost to pay, but there's also a huge benefit. And the benefit will be economic and it'll be driven by investment and it'll be driven by clean air. But I think, you know, on again, in the House back when Obama was president, part of the frustration when we were doing oversight hearings was there was no acknowledgement the prices were going to go up. And where we would rather they said, yeah, the prices are going to go up, but here are all the benefits. And in the long term, they'll go down. And I think that would have saved us from a lot of the, the bickering that we're now doing, you know, 10 years later, at least in Washington. Of course, everybody knows that things cost money. But what gets me on that particular issue is the tendency to blame everything on the environmental regulations. And we do hear a lot of that. I think a lot of people would say they have been pointing out the benefits as well, but that not everyone values them equally. Things like social benefits, if we're either talking just purely economic ones or you are accounting for the broader suite of them. And, you know, the social cost of carbon, for instance, and there's a lively debate about how to price things um, and what really gets factored into that equation. So now let's turn to corporate average fuel economy standards, the CAFE standards, a topic that is very much in the news right now. In 2012, the Obama administration, in collaboration with industry groups, decided to raise fuel economy rules to an average of 54.5 miles per gallon by 2025, which was nearly double the 2012 average. The Trump administration has since proposed freezing the federal standards at 2021 levels at around 37 miles per gallon. Another part of the Trump proposal is to remove California's waiver, which was granted a long time ago as part of the Clean Air Act. That allows the state to set stricter air pollution standards for motor vehicles than the federal government. That waiver is now under threat. Comments on the CAFE replacement are due at the end of this week. I also understand negotiations are taking place as filings are being submitted. When we talked to Mandy Gunasekara, a top EPA official on this podcast, she said there would be a range of proposals, not only one, that stakeholders could weigh in on. Mary, what is the range? Is there really a range? And where do things stand? What could we end up with here? Uh, well, the, there's uh, there are all variations on the delay and dilute theme. Uh, uh, there is, I guess, always a no action alternative, but that's not the proposal. The proposal is to freeze everything where it is at uh, the 2021 level and revoke the California waiver at the same time. So that is the that's the preferred option. But then they agree that they'll consider um, comments that people might want to put in on other slightly less onerous uh, onerous proposals. And we are going to be filing by the end of this week. 
It's over 350 pages long, and it basically demolishes the rationale for this regulatory proposal. I mean, we we sued back when we still had uh, Administrator Pruitt in office, and he made a finding that uh, the current standards were no longer technically feasible, uh, and that was what triggered the current rulemaking because he, having made that finding, then it was up to EPA to go back and DOT to propose what would be feasible and uh, the modeling that they used, the assumptions that they used, the economics that they used, every bit of it is just faulty. So it's it's a very long set of comments. And a lot of other people are filing comments as well. It's going to take uh, the agencies some time to actually read these comments, I'm sure. And we've heard some rumblings that they may actually issue a revised proposal at least to correct some of the just mathematical errors that are in what they put out because it was a pretty hastily done job and frankly it shows the signs of having been written by people who were not the people who actually run these programs. I mean one of my biggest disappointments in this entire enterprise has been the fact that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and its staff, who are mostly based in Ann Arbor in a laboratory out there, uh, have been systematically frozen out of the discussion. Uh, They were actually allowed to file some comments uh, through the uh, OMB process, and they've contradicted what their own agency leaders have put out there in the public record on on the facts on the science it's amazing but nobody's listening to them so uh, i think that's a that is a problem right there so taking the policy out of it and looking you know procedurally putting our lawyer caps on i i think we can all assume that unless um carb and epa find some sort of agreement whereby there's one national standard that both parties agree to it'll ultimately be resolved in court and so if it's resolved in CARB's favor or California's favor, then obviously we know what the plan is, presumably based on what we've seen so far. If it's resolved in the federal government's favor, then what next for CARB? What what, what steps do you take at that point? Well, there are other ways to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases from light-duty vehicles besides setting standards for new vehicles. The state has a lot of authority over its own roads and what kinds of vehicles can operate under them. So one of the ideas that's been out there for many years and many economists, in fact, have told us that it would be much more uh, cost-effective and efficient if we were to um, have a sliding scale of taxes on um, sales taxes for new vehicles and registration fees for um, existing cars uh, that were based on emissions. Why not just do that? Well, we don't do it mainly because the dealers hate it, the manufacturers hate it, uh, and the legislature usually says, uh, we're not going there. This is way too complicated. Why don't you, Carve, just go off and do your job and set an emission standard based on technology, and you know that'll be fine, and we don't have to worry about it. But if we uh, were to ultimately lose uh, the authority that we have, and I, I, I 
frankly, I don't rate that as very likely, but it's a risk, of course, that we have to be worried about. That would be uh, truly an existential uh, act, as the governor likes to say. It would be a, it would take away our primary uh, reason for existence as far as ARB is concerned. All of our other programs, in a sense, flow from the expertise that we've developed over the years in automotive technology and our ability to set the kind of standards that the car companies usually after some amount of fuss turn out to be able to meet and that allow them to manufacture uh, cars that have all sorts of other desirable attributes and that they can sell all over the world and that's how we become the leaders in this field and how we've succeeded in cleaning up our air. I think an attempt to take away that authority ends up with some real losses to our U.S. auto companies, frankly. And I think that they will, at the end of the day, even though they may be tepidly uh, opposing what the Trump administration is doing now, you know, they will find that they are in a much disadvantaged position as they try to compete. Yeah, the sales tax angle would certainly hurt the automakers, as you mentioned. I guess, you know, it might actually, and I'm not sure, I, I, this is not, this is my understanding of what would happen. I'm not speaking for the Trump administration, but it might actually accomplish their goals, right? Insofar as that it would put all the cost of compliance on California drivers, not on the fleet-wide sales of a vehicle, which would put the cost of compliance on, I guess, all drivers, right? Well, the, it's a fleet average, uh, the cafe standards that exist today. Uh, again, we don't we don't control what that number is, and we're not really particularly uh, fans of the cafe law for many reasons. One of which is that it distinguishes based on the footprint of the vehicle, so it has had a very deleterious effect of. Uh, really promoting the rise of SUVs and uh, crossover vehicles and uh, made it much easier for them to comply uh, and to not have to do anything when it comes to uh, using existing technology that could actually get better fuel economy for for drivers, for consumers. So uh, we are no great fans of the CAFE law, but we do believe in um, regulating for emissions, regulating the things that, you know, are, are harmful to health. And over the years, what we found is that the cost of achieving those standards has been pretty minimal in California, and it has been a California program. It's true that um, if a car or a truck gets better fuel economy and otherwise has all the same uh, qualities as as it did before, um, the customers not, are not going to object. I mean, people may not rate fuel economy as their number one uh, desired uh, I do now. quality, but, but it certainly is up there. And if you're choosing between two models and there's an appreciable difference, people will go for the, for the vehicle that has a better fuel economy. I just wanted to share an anecdotal story about sort of what this all means and the ability to regulate these emissions in, in California. You know, my dad just moved back to L.A. two weeks ago, and he used to live here in the mid-'80s. He hasn't been back since. And he came over to our place in, in Venice um, on Sunday, 
and could not believe you could see the mountains uh, from the beach. Because last time you was here in the mid-80s, like you couldn't. And that's because of California's ability to regulate these emissions and things like the waivers. So this is a big has a big impact on Californians. And I always thought the Republicans were the party of states' rights. So uh, I'm not sure on what you guys are doing over there to try to take this ability away from California. Well, and so that's the interesting question that I wanted to pose uh, to Mary was that I actually like what they're doing. I remember my, you know, my dad lived here when I was growing up, so I remember it. And I like what we're seeing, so I don't object subjectively. My question was more objectively, um, what if the federal government says no? Isn't that sort of that? And if it isn't, and we, we find exceptions in the law if the Supreme Court were to go that way or something that could have, you know, far reaching impacts on non-environmental issues. And that's where I get a little concerned from a procedural legal perspective. So the Clean Air Act didn't just give California the right to set stricter standards. Over the years, Congress also added a provision that allowed other states that wanted to use California standards to adopt them. So instead of having 50 different state standards, there's basically two standards. There's a federal standard and there's the California standard. And we do have 13 states uh, that use the California standards. And what's interesting is that in spite of everything else that's going on, we're beginning to see some other states uh, wanting to adopt California's emission standards and have California standards in their states, and that includes Colorado, and this is on the table now or under discussion in a couple of Midwestern states as well. So do you think that is the best way to deal with the IPCC report is like show California as a model and how it can work and then hope that other states will follow? Or are we going to need the federal government to take more action on this? Well, uh, this is uh, uh, something that we've been talking about quite a bit lately because we just came from a, a big uh, UN summit in San Francisco where one of the one of the featured events was a report from uh, the Bloomberg organization, which the governor, uh, Jerry Brown, also was a party to called America's Pledge. And what they what they did was to look at could you achieve what the United States promised it would do under Kyoto without the federal government itself actually taking action? If if states and cities and the private sector stepped up to the plate and did some ambitious things, which many of them already are doing, uh, could we actually get to where we need to go? And the answer to that is it's close, but not quite. Uh, and not on the time frame that I think we need. So we could do a lot, and we already are doing a lot, and at the end of the day, many of the measures that you're talking about end up having to be implemented at the local level anyway. Um, certainly when you start talking about the transportation system, land use planning, housing, all those things, those are very much local prerogatives, and they're all going to be needed in order to solve this problem. And you're now actually charged with looking at a lot of that under Governor Jerry Brown's new executive order to look at a fully decarbonized California economy. There's the uh, 2045 clean energy electricity mandate, and now also this executive order, which is interesting. Um, I guess, how realistic is that, do you think, to get to a fully decarbonized economy? That would be truly historic beyond anything we could imagine if California could do such a thing. Well, my agency has been tasked with coming up with a plan that shows how this can be done. So stay tuned. Um, 
we certainly are going to take this on in the same kind of methodical way that we always do. And I believe that what you'll see is a much greater emphasis on uh, ways in which we can store carbon in our natural and working lands and more emphasis on uh, pretty dramatic ways that we could reduce uh, the transportation sector emissions and that even with all of that, we will be engaged, I'm sure, in more international activities as well uh, as part of this effort. So, you know, I, I think it's doable and I think it's doable in a way that Californians could look at and say, yeah, this is a future that we actually would, would like to have. Uh, but I do come back to the question of whether California has to do this all on its own. I mean, I, the point of being an example is absolutely correct, that right now we are the place that people look to to show that you can make drastic reductions, you can become more efficient, you can become more carbon-free, and at the same time, you can have a strong economy and otherwise not make what people would consider to be unacceptable sacrifices in terms of the quality of life. People in California live well. It seems almost a bit polarized in this sense, though. You have California moving forward, setting an example for the globe at the same time as sort of a retrenchment and repeal of existing federal level regulations. I remember you saying at the Global Climate Action Summit at one event that there hasn't been a week that California hasn't been under attack, though. Uh, is this different today? Does it feel like the attacks are different in any way? I know some environmentalists might be asking if the Trump administration is looking to punish California on some philosophical basis. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, I, I did comment in San Francisco about the pace and the scope of the deregulatory activities that are going on within the federal government. I, I believe that the president, when he was running for office, actually promised to abolish EPA. And in his first uh, budget, uh, the the uh, budget reductions for EPA were uh, really catastrophic. Um, they would have shut down the regional offices. They would have shut down the, the famous Ann Arbor Laboratory where all the motor vehicle work is done. Uh, Congress did not allow that to happen. And this is a Republican-controlled Congress in both houses. And you could see that um, they just were not about to go that way. Uh, there's a, a much bigger recognition than I think sometimes you might get from just following the, the political chatter that there is a need for basic environmental regulations for a level playing field that, you know, clean air and clean water are things that the public values and uh, want to see happening. You tend to get into these more esoteric battles about, you know, whether a particular pesticide should be banned or whether, um, you know, there's a, a, a particular area should be off limits for oil and gas development or, you know, pipeline projects that become very polarizing. Uh, and, and certainly uh, we haven't seen a lot of new progressive environmental laws being passed by Congress for a number of years now. Uh, that didn't start with the Trump administration. I mean, we had gridlock for 
you know, quite some time, unfortunately, despite President Obama's best efforts. So uh, I think that we need to dig a little deeper to figure out how we can build a consensus around doing things that uh, the public will see as being valuable and worthwhile and that don't uh, create the kind of backlash that, that we're seeing. I wanted to quickly ask on the clean car front, um, I saw you tweet recently about Veloz, this new, I guess, marketing and public awareness campaign and consortium um, that's talking about EVs and getting the word out. Uh, and you tweeted that um, that EVs are at a tipping point and likely alliance of powerhouses have come together to promote them in spite of dark forces in the universe. What did you mean by that? <laughs> I thought that would be intriguing and people, I people would ask me the question. Well, I, what I had in mind was the, the resistance that has been created and is being funded by, as far as we know, in terms of public statements, uh, the Koch brothers who have decided that any form of subsidy or encouragement or incentive uh, for electric vehicles is a bad thing. Uh, obviously, uh, in the long run, it will displace petroleum, which is what their business is founded on. But it, it seems like uh, even they would have to concede that you know we're not we don't have enough oil and gas around forever. It is a finite resource, and so they're willing to spend all of this money just to slow down the transition to something that pretty much everybody who is an observer has said is going to happen regardless of what they do. And so we're having this, you know, well-funded political campaign just to slow down something that's already happening. And I guess it, to me that that represents dark forces in the universe. And lies. <laughs> They tried this before with, you know, power generation. Remember all the stuff about solar, how it was going to make the grid unreliable. You couldn't have more than 10% on the grid. They have run this playbook before, and it is um, disgusting. I like solar, but we don't have more than 10% on the grid, just for the record. So we'd have to sort Well, of in certain times in certain states, we definitely do, certainly here in California. Uh, no doubt. I guess, you know, talking about California's leadership, I wanted to end on how you even got consensus here in this state. We sort of take for granted that California is all on the same page, but there are battles being fought here. You've been part of the cap and trade discussions, which do involve um, the petroleum in, uh, industry. And I, I recall reading that um, the president of the Western States Petroleum Association credited you and your negotiating abilities and getting them at the table at the same time as some environmentalists in California were claiming that the program gave the industry is way too much. So how do you navigate things like that? I've been, I've been told you've actually brought cookies to meetings to help <laughs> reduce tension. Not on cap and trade. I was, I was, not, I was out of the cookie, cookie baking at that point. Um, no, I, uh, look, uh, I, I, I'm always happy to be given credit for something that good. But in this case, I think the credit goes to the governor who systematically worked with the individual members of the legislature and in particular with the Republicans to find some who would be willing to give him the votes that he needed because we had to have a two-thirds vote to reauthorize this program. And at the end of the day, the leader of the Republicans in the Assembly paid a heavy price. He, he 
he had to give up his leadership position because uh, his fellow caucus members were so angry at him for having supported this thing. But that was the, Chad Mays, right? That was Chad Mays, right. Uh, but the argument that he used, and which was persuasive, that, because we actually got more than the minimum uh, number of Republican votes that we needed on that, uh, was that the state had previously adopted these very ambitious greenhouse gas reduction goals. And if you were going to maintain those goals and, you know, we're serious about trying to meet them, that cap and trade was the most cost effective, the least burdensome way of getting to those goals. And so his his argument, and he made this uh, in public and on the floor, was, uh, look, if we don't vote for this, we're going to end up with ARB doing much more draconian things that we're all going to hate. So I, I think if, if you want to give me credit, it's for having been an effective boogeyman <laughs> that, you know, could frighten people into voting for a cap and trade Whatever program. Whatever gets the job done, right? <laughs> right? Speaking of boogeyman, if you believe President Trump right now, the biggest threat to our you know, country is these like 6,000 Central Americans coming over in a van. I find that odd considering, you know, if climate, if we don't get to work on climate change, imagine the displacement that's going to happen with, you know, hundreds of millions of people across the, the country. What do you think about that, Shane? That's about eight levels ahead of me in chess right now. I'm not even close to thinking about <laughs> like migratory patterns based on carbon emission scenarios. I'm sorry. Well, we do have climate refugees today. We have whole island nations in the South Pacific that are underwater or nearly underwater and people preemptively having to leave their homes because of that. So as Brandon just said, we're kind of running out of time in this fight. The IPCC report confirms that. I guess my final question to you is, is there any space to make concessions at this moment? A lot of people are anxious. They're worried about the future. And even our podcast gets blowback for even having these conversations and entertaining the quote unquote middle ground, which may or may not even exist. What is your thought on that? Do we have time to work together or is it about going for the most aggressive policy and finding a way to get that through first and, and only focus on that? You know, as usual, I probably have too many answers to that question because I think it's some of both. Um, I don't think we can afford to continue to have debates about whether climate change is real or whether uh, humans are the cause of it or whether there are things that we can do. So if the Republicans or anybody else feels like that's the ground that they want to stand on, I don't know how we can have that discussion. I am seeing increasing numbers of people, Republican people, uh, joining up with a caucus that's saying we want to find a way to do something. And I, I'm always prepared to be happy when I see people first just being willing to come to the table because if you've got them there, then you've got a chance at least that you could come up with something I think, uh, and I say this as a this is kind of a wild thing to throw out at the end of the conversation, but uh, if the federal government were to pa pass a carbon tax law, uh, whether or not it's revenue neutral, which is what some people think it has to be in order to pass, I 
that that wouldn't be my preference, but whatever it is, if they would put a price on carbon and make that part of federal policy, I think a lot of other things would begin to fall into place and that you would then begin to see uh, people uh, in many states that are now considered to be, you know, anti-climate stepping up and uh, beginning to be more progressive in some of the actions that they would be taking. So I do think the federal government needs to find a way to say something, even if even if it isn't enough. And I think that there's a reasonable chance, given the horrific weather patterns that we're seeing now, uh, that, that that will happen. Well, the elections are coming up. That will play a role. And as you say, maybe we'll see action regardless as it becomes just so much more obvious that the climate is changing, I think, to everybody. And uh, it's becoming harder and harder to deny. Washington State will be a test case for this in November on the carbon fee. Absolutely. And we'll have much more election discussion to come in our next episode. Uh, Mary, thanks so much for coming on. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Mary. It's fun to talk to you guys. Thank you. Well, that is our show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Remember to follow Political Climate on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever it is that you listen. And please leave us a review. It really helps us reach more people. Also, tweet at us at poly underscore climate. Let us know what's on your mind. As I mentioned, we'll be taking a close look at the midterms next week. So if there are races that you're watching or specific issues that you're tracking, we want to know. Thanks again and until soon. (music) 